Welcome to the Brookie and Burjo podcast and welcome Darren Burgess. Okay, Brookie, how are you going? I'm good, I'm good. Why don't you uh, introduce our special guest today? Well, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real pleasure to, to introduce Steve Horvath to everybody. Um, just if uh, everybody, anybody who doesn't know who Steve is, um, in terms of a player, a soccer football player, um, he made 32 appearances for the Australian Socceroos between uh, 94 and 2002 and played for, uh, bounced around the National Soccer League, if, if I can be respectful and, and say played for a few clubs there, but also had a, a, a stint at Hajduk Split in his native Croatia and um, had a year at Crystal Palace as well. Um, although without any appearances, I noticed, Steve. But uh, welcome, Steve. Welcome to the Brookie and Burjo pod- podcast. Yeah, great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me on. I think probably um, uh, most pertinently to today's discussion, Steve's also one of the directors at uh, the Western United um, A-League club, uh, A-League soccer in Australia. And uh, uh, they started uh, how many years ago, Steve? Well, we got our licence on December 13, 2018. So not, not long ago, this is uh, just completed our third season in the competition. And uh, Steve, being very humble, the, the team actually won the A-League, which is a, a, an absolute uh, meteoric rise to the top of Australian soccer. And, and we're going to have a chat to Steve about about how it all started. So why don't you, you give us a, a quick rundown of your, your football career first, Steve, as a player? Yeah, look, obviously... Um like you said, played for uh, uh, some clubs in Australia, had a stint overseas, um, played uh, in, in my uh, other native country from my yeah. uh, in, in Croatia, Hayduk Split, was, which was incredible playing Champions League, <laughs> uh, playing uh, football over there for a period of time. Had a, had a spell in the UK, which was interrupted by work permit issues, um, then came back to Australia uh, in 2000, um, spent the last couple of years playing in the old NSL and, and coming back to my original club, uh, the Melbourne Knights, um, in 2003 and, and rounding out uh, a playing career, which, you know, was was incredible. You know, like you said, represented uh, my country, played in the Atlanta Olympics, uh, played in an under-17s World Cup, represented Australia at all levels, uh, took me around the world and, and back um, which I was fortunate enough to experience, you know, through my playing days. Not many people get to have that life experience um, and, uh, yeah, forever thankful for, you know, coaches along the way um, and, and supportive parents. And I think probably um, uh, most people around the world who are listening uh, may not be aware, but certainly the, um, the Australian audience will be aware of the famed sort of Australian Institute of Sport yeah. Um, group that came through around your time. Do you want to just give us a quick snapshot as to how that helped your development and and uh, what do you think is the main uh, the main skills you were given at that time that that allowed you and others of that generation to to succeed on the world stage? Look, undoubtedly, the the single biggest factor in a successful footballing career that I've had was uh, the Australian Institute of Sport at the time, uh, Ron Smith who was leading that program, uh, did some incredible things in, for the development of, of Australian footballers uh, that went on to not only play for the national team, but had really successful careers in Europe. And, you know, I was a 15-year-old uh, skinny, tall kid 
uh, kicking around uh, Geelong. Um, obviously had represented state teams at, at that time, um, but Ron came down literally for a, a coaching course where they were coaching some, uh, you know, up-and-coming coaches getting their licences, and he spent four days down there uh, sort of mentoring the coaches and the the state team was used as um, you know a, a footballing team to put on drills and sessions throughout those four days. And the end of the fourth day, he said he turned around and said to me, "Are your parents coming to pick you up?" And I said, uh, "Yes, they are." He goes, "Well, I'd love to have a, a quick chat to them." And I said, "No problem." So my parents came up, and and Ron offered me a scholarship on the spot, and uh, probably changed my life forever. Uh, literally. Four or five months later, I've moved interstate as a 15-year-old into pretty much a professional football environment, you know. So we were still going to school, but we were getting up in the morning, training, gym, uh, and then training in the afternoon. Uh, and literally seven, eight months later, I was playing in an under-17s World Cup for my country. So it was such a meteoric sort of rise and, and development path um, that – you know, I, I no doubt wouldn't have had the career I had without that. And it was an incredible environment. Um, it no longer exists in its uh, original format, but probably during that period of time, I was there in 1987, 88, probably that time until the mid-90s to early 2000s, developed uh, many, many national team players um, that went on to play in World Cups. So an incredible footballing environment and Ron Smith, one of the greatest football educators and coaches of young players this country's ever seen. What, what, if you had to pick out one or two things, and I know he was at the forefront of, you know, looking at heart rates and doing physical testing as well, which was, you know, this is a long time ago where no one else was considering this, but he was right at the forefront. And Brookie and I were fortunate enough to spend a fair bit of time with Smudge um, in in uh, various roles with the Socceroos, um, what what would be the one thing that you one or two things that you think made him stand out, and that program stand out compared to what's available now for for aspiring young uh, soccer players in this country? I guess one thing that I mentioned was you know the, the facilities that we had at the AIS. You literally. You woke up, you walked 50 metres to an indoor hall, you walked another you know, 50 metres to uh, a world-class gym facility, um, sports science testing, um, incredible pitches. So facilities and access and, and availability was incredible. You know, even on days off, you could just walk down and, and have a kick and, 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 and do think whatever you wanted. So that was one thing. But I guess probably Ron's enthusiasm and support and um, – just his education around playing football and those real fundamentals that, you know, probably a lot of players weren't being coached, uh, at least in this country at, at that time. So, you know, it opened my eyes to a whole different world of and, and way of playing football, you know, simple things like, like body position, first touch and all those sorts of things that – you know, weren't really coached at, at uh, community club levels, let's say. So, you know, those things were, were fundamental. And um, I think the improvement that, you know, he got out of myself um, was enormous. And, and I guess 
the ability then to play against uh, a higher level of competition. We were playing in men competitions. So I was a 15, 16 year old playing against, you know, 25 year old season professionals week in, week out, which skyrocketed my development. And, and you got to grow up and learn what it takes pretty quickly to, to play professional football. And then I guess moving on um, post-career to your involvement with, with Western United, most of our um, audience will be fascinated with how you set up or you were integral and some of the strategies that you used to set up the club both on-field and off-field from the very beginning. Um, I guess from a, you know administrative point of view, um, give us a quick summary of what you needed to do in order to gain the licence because I, I recall it being a a fairly heavy, you know, bidding war at the time. There were sort of nine or ten uh, pretty compelling bids to get that next license. Um, what um, what do you think stood out in the Western United license that got you the gig? Uh, look, I, I think our our long term vision and strategy is is what gave us got us over the line. Like you said, it was it was incredibly competitive. There hadn't been expansion of the A League for a number of years, so there were two new teams coming in, which would grow the competition from ten teams to twelve. Um, and, and and like I said, I guess the infrastructure we promised to build and incorporate in our build, um, in our bid was integral because in this country, there aren't enough football facilities. The game is the most popular participation sport in this country, but there isn't enough fields to accommodate uh, all, all the player requirements. So for us, it was about building a training, a state-of-the-art elite training complex, which we've started work on and will be ready uh, next May, and a purpose-built <coughs> stadium. In this country, all the teams play out of government-owned facilities, um, so nobody really owns their own football ground. You know, we will be the first elite football team in this country to own their own stadium. So it really is, it was integral in our bid, and, and obviously, you know, we're in the second largest city of uh, in the country in Melbourne. Uh, there were two teams existing already in Melbourne, um, but a third in, in a real big growth corridor population-wise uh, in the West, uh, I guess, uh, was another factor that, uh, that got us the bid. So, yeah, two, two teams ended up coming in, ourselves and another team from the West of Sydney. So you've got the license. Yeah. Um, the license is is awarded to you guys, and then you have to panic. Yeah. <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally put a team together from scratch that has uh, no home ground advantage, no because uh, that's as you said that's being built. Yeah. Um, no uh, players, no training ground, no uh, coach at this point. Um, what what are the what are the main rocks other than those, those that I've mentioned, or including those that I've mentioned, to literally put together a team from scratch? This sounds like every kid's dream, you know, to put together a, a, a team. But how do you manage to do that? And and what are your key sort of pillars? Because there's got to be a cultural fit. There's got to be, um, you know, you can't just bring players from anywhere. They all have to gel and align together and align with your philosophy. I'm asking you a lot of questions there, Steve. Um, uh, what are the, what are the big Big tickets. 
Yeah, look, if if I if I think back, it, I I, um, I I sort of it's hard to believe. Like you said, it's probably everyone's dream. It's like a fantasy, real life fantasy football. Um, but you know, the 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 dream became a nightmare pretty quickly when we started to write a list of what we needed to do. And like I said, there were there were two teams that came in at the same time. <clears throat> However, they were going to have staggered entries. So basically, <clears throat> we were the team that got selected to come in in the next season, whereas the team from Sydney had another season uh, post that to prepare. So they literally had probably 18 months. I mean, just quickly on the timelines, so December 13, we were awarded the licence in 2018. We needed to put a complete football staff playing roster football department together um, to begin work in June, so six months later, our first training session at the start of July for our first match uh, in the A-League on October 13, so 10 months after we were awarded um, the licence. And when you when you spell it out like that, it probably seems impossible and, and you know, people, you know, listening in possibly from overseas uh, you know, are thinking, well, you know, Clubs take three, four years to to build and set the foundation. You know, we literally had six months. And like you said, you know, it was an enormous task. But I guess what we needed to do, um, outside of all the other commercial things that the CEO and, and, and the business side of the club needed to do, we needed, like you said, a home, a training facility. Um, we needed players um, and, and staff. So... I, I guess my involvement in the building of the club was just to purely focus on on those elements and and have an initial team around us that will work through that in in such a short period of time, right? And you know, in, in hindsight, when I look back and I've been doing a couple of these types of interviews lately, you know, we didn't get everything right, but um, we did as as best as we could. And and again. Uh, it probably that that six months was really mostly focused on the recruitment aspect and having a training facility. In the past, in this country, when expansion teams have come into the league, they've really struggled with having a home base, a, a, a training facility that, and they hopped around to, from from different locations. So, one of the key elements was making sure that the environment that the football staff and the players had was as best as it could be, was elite, so that when you brought your your foreigners from overseas, they weren't coming to a substandard uh, workplace. And, and I think if we gave them the, the very best that we could, then they were able to uh, deliver on the park and, and enjoy coming to work every day. And that's such an important aspect when you're a professional footballer. Thinking back at my time as a player, you know, if you, you love coming to work, if you, you love being where you are. So that was really, I guess, a, a key element. And we landed, there was a facility that was just being completed in the west of Melbourne that we uh, joined partnerships with, where that we called our home for the first two and a half years of, of our existence, which was quite fortunate. And Literally, when we had our first orientation day around mid-June with the staff and the players, you know, some of the players that had come from other clubs were saying that, well, this is as good, if not better, than the top half of the A-League clubs that have been around for 14, 15 years. So 
that was great feedback to know that, um, you know, they were going to enjoy their workplace and it was a, a place that was going to be conducive to them uh, performing at their best. So obviously that was a, a big thing. And you mentioned culture uh, and getting a, a, team, a group of players um, together for the first time, you know, which, you know, is, um, is, is quite incredible. Obviously when the league started, everyone was in the same boat, but you needed to play catch up now. You were, you were obviously going to be competing against teams that had been around for 15 years. Um, so you needed to recruit well um, and have a good mix of experienced players that had been around. That middle tier performance player that are at their peak, you know, probably in the mid twenties and that next crop of, of younger players that are coming through. So that was a real, um, uh, a task as well to find that that right balance. Did we get it correct in the first year? Um, we were one game away from a grand final, so you could say we did, but um, it was it was a, a, a rocky road that that first season. Uh, there was a lot of highs, a lot of lows, um, and we we you know probably a, a problem was starting a club in a pandemic as well, which we spent half of our first season uh, in 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 quarantine and, and, and lockdown and uh, playing away from home. But um, it was, you know, obviously putting that all together in, in such a short period of time was the fundamental thing was about getting the right people around you and uh, and making sure key people in, in key roles um, were going to live out our values um, and our culture, you know, every day. Um, you know, when you talk about culture, we – when we got the group together for the first time, you know, over the first couple of weeks of pre-season training, we, we spent a lot of time around what this club was going to stand for. And, and I guess the three pillars and three um, key sort of messages we have around our club, which we still see today in our, in our dressing rooms, in our change rooms, around our football club, are effort, togetherness and growth. So they're really three key pillars that we build our club on and everything we do. Effort, every day you come in, you give 100% effort. Togetherness, it, you know, we're always together as a group. Uh, and growth, we want to get better. You know, it's, it's always about getting better. No doubt, you know, uh, Burjo, in sport, if, if you're not growing and if you're standing still, everyone's coming for you and, and going past you. So... We did a lot of work around the, the culture piece and what we wanted to stand for. Um, and, and like I said, we we got to within one game of the grand final, which was uh, a phenomenal feat in our first year. So Steve, there are obviously yep. two elements to recruiting players, is the local yep. players and the international players. Yep. How did you go about the international players? And, and explain how many you're allowed and, and how you went about it. Yeah, look, it's obviously... Uh, it, it was worldwide news that we, we received a license. So the advantage of that is uh, you, you get a lot of emails and phone calls pretty quickly about players wanting to wanting to come to your to your club. Uh, I guess for us, the and, and in this competition, the the tough one is always about bringing foreigners over uh, from overseas into the league and into the country um, because. We're probably not at the pay scale of some of the other foreign countries, either in Asia or if you look at the MLS. So it's important to get the right fit 
of player, to get the player that's coming, you know, for the right reasons. Um, and, and I think probably over over our three-year period, we've done okay at that. Um, I guess in the past in the A-League, successful clubs have had successful foreigners that have done well and adjusted and really contributed. So, you know, probably, you know, the one standout uh, player that we've had is Alessandro Diamanti, you know, over our first three three years, who's been our inaugural captain of our club as well. Um, you know, we had a we had a recruitment group that that looked at foreigners, and you know, I, I guess it's really around not only talking to the player, uh, which the coach does, and the, his representatives, but then doing your due diligence. You know, um, I remember our head coach at the time talking to the boot guy at West Ham about him, you know, and, and going into that sort of depth to get real opinions about what the person is like around the group, you know, which is which is really important because you want to be, bring players that are going to be the right fit, but also here to impart their knowledge, right, about what they've experienced at the very highest levels, you know. Uh, uh, Alinos played in the EPL, the Serie A, at the very highest levels. And these are the type of players that can only benefit our game in this country and the, the young players coming through. So we knew that culturally he was going to be a great fit. We didn't know how incredible a character he was going to be for our football club and within our club and to put us you know literally on the map uh in terms of uh in a global sense so he was phenomenal and what i can say and and probably you know you guys have seen this throughout you know being involved in sport it's, it's all about hard work you know this is a guy who is now around 38 years of age who still trains as hard as any player on our roster and is so down on himself when he misses a training session. And he brought that energy um, and work ethic from day one pre-season training um, and never missed a session, was always upbeat, always smiling, helping the young boys, demanding excellence and pushing the other players, which is what we needed. So he was um, he was outstanding. So in terms of what ha- I mean, he's a perfect. He was a perfect fit for our football club, you know. And I guess those are the type of things you want to look for when you're recruiting from from overseas. And I guess having um, having been involved uh, off and on a little bit from the start, Steve, and had many coffees with you out at out at Caroline Springs um, yep. at the training facility. The the next area, um, obviously, playing. Um, Roster is crucial and talent will always uh, get you so far. But how did you go um, about uh, recruiting the the staff? You know, the, the, in particular, I guess, the performance staff. We'll get to the coaching in a moment. Yep. Um, but in terms of the doctors, physios, uh, fitness, analysis, kit man, you know, all that sort of stuff, putting that together, um, how did you ensure that that was the right fit with the right sort of culture and work ethic and, and all that stuff because uh, I can tell the, the listeners out there playing uh, in a pandemic with no home ground, with no training base, uh, you know, that, that's your own just yet because it's being built, um, creates a whole lot of challenges. You need a certain type of person to be able to push through that uh, and to show people like Diamante and, and others that you're still putting on the most professional service to these players. Um, 
So yeah, if you could if you just comment briefly on on how that all went. Yeah, I, I think uh, obviously the you know all of us involved that were working through this have had experience in football, you know, so we knew a lot of people and were able to draw on our contacts to be able to get some short lists of, of people that were highly recommended. Um, because the problem we faced is that we didn't have a lot of time, you know, um, we, we couldn't run, you know, two month processes and, and those sort of things. So we had to really um, get a short list as, as quickly as possible. Obviously, like I said, as well as, you know, on the playing side, we were inundated with, you know, player re requests and those sort of things. The same is said on, on the performance side and the on the staffing side and, and medicine and those sort of things, because there aren't many jobs in elite sport in this country. So, um, you know, we were, we also received uh, a lot of interest from that side, but you know, we drew on our contacts and again on on recommendation on you know people like yourself, Darren, that knew the industry um, and and knew would be a right fit for what we were trying to create. And I guess you know if I look back at those those three pillars, probably in a in a staffing perspective, especially in that first season it was really important to find people that had an incredible work ethic because we weren't, we weren't bust, bursting over the seams with staff. We had to make do with the resources that we had and for them to be able to have an incredible work ethic to, to get the job done that needed to be done. I mean, we went into our first pre-season without a, a lead S&C person. You know, we had a... Uh, somebody who just finished their studies and, and, and coming out who had a great playing career but hadn't had that experience. So we, we you know, basically the head coach and him developed the, the pre-season plan in, in season one. So we had to make do with um, with not everything being in place come first day of pre-season training. But what we did find is that everyone that we brought in were incredibly um, excited about the opportunity and worked incredibly hard that first season and in particular pre-season to get everything we needed to get out of that to set us up for, for a good year. So um, I, I guess, you know, we needed that was probably key when we were um, recruiting and, and interviewing people that we said, this is going to be tough. This is not for everybody. Um, you need to be prepared to, to roll your sleeves up. I mean, I was literally at the club day and night that first season, you know, trying to, to get things in place um, along with others. So, you know, we if we had staff that, you know, were willing to work uh, as hard and we were on the right path, and we had that. It was it was an incredible environment that, that first pre-season. I, I guess... The birth of a new club brings that, you know. Uh, if I look at our results on the park, that first season, you know, there was always a first ever friendly preseason game. There was a first ever actual game in the competition. There was a first ever win. There was a first ever home game. There was a first ever uh, derby, Melbourne derby, let's say. So there was an incredible number of firsts, which was which made it a little bit easier to get the players and staff up for it. You know, there was a lot of excitement around the club. So that helped us a lot. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the people that we brought in really bought into what we were trying to do and understood that 
you know, it wasn't going to be easy, but they were up for it. And then, uh, so you had a very successful first year, um, where, as you said, you just missed out on the on the grand final, yeah. and then uh, the second year uh, just missed out on finals, and and the club made the decision to um, to change coaches. Yeah. Um, and we won't sort of get into the the reasons why, but once you made that decision as a as a club and a board, um, the recruitment process. For, to, to recruit the next head coach. Um, how did you go about that? Um, yeah, and, and what were the, the main uh, um, attributes that you wanted in, in the next, the second coach of, of Western United? Yeah, obviously towards the end of season two, we, we had a run of eight losses um, in, in the regular season, ended up finishing, um, you know, well outside the six. And, um, you know, and... Uh, the board and and, uh, and and the group decided to to part ways with the coach. So we then obviously had the task of um, you know searching for a replacement. Um, we we put together a, a coach recruitment panel, which which I led with our GM of football. Um, obviously, yourself was we we drafted yourself in to be to be part of that process. And I guess. Um, it's it's for the first time we were able to actually run a process because we had we didn't have a lot of time but we at least had a window of a month or so to to spend that time to make sure we got the right fit moving forward and I, I guess we were inundated obviously with with requests for for the coaching position um, and we got down to probably a list of fifteen. Um, and what we did with all of those candidates, we we gave them a one-page overview of our of our football club, our philosophies, um, our core values, uh, which I, which I mentioned earlier around effort, togetherness, and growth. Um, and obviously, we we want to be successful. You know, we for us to grow the football club um, until we build our stadium in our region uh, that we're surrounded by a population. Um, success on the park was was important to us, you know, to make sure we're playing finals, to to make sure we're pushing to to win a title um, at this early stage of of our you know footballing life. So they were all the key elements that that we looked at, and um, and we ran a process, an exhausting exhaustive process, if I if I might say. But I, I think um, we we took the time. We whittled it down to to about eight, where we did some some in depth interviews, got it down to about four, got it down to a final two. Uh, probably spoke to the final four candidates about three times, uh, and the final uh, four candidates were you know uh, charged with putting their their philosophy on what they think, what they see for Western United, how they see the, the club evolving, the team, uh, strengths and weaknesses, and, and what we need to do to get better. And, and I guess uh, the, the attributes we were we were looking for were exactly what have been our core values from day one. And what struck us, I, I guess, and you know, we can open, openly talk about John Aloisi winning winning that uh, winning that process and, and being named as our head coach. Um, everyone in this country remembers him as the, the socceroo that put us into a, a World Cup via a penalty shootout in 2005. 
And he'd had some stints before as a head coach in the A-League, um, one with Melbourne Heart and Brisbane Raw, and unjustly so was was criticised for his time at, at those clubs. Um, but we saw through that and we saw through John Aloisi, the, the cult figure uh, around the, the history around his penalty and saw his determination and his work ethic and his understanding and you know, real alignment with our values, which was really important, you know. And again, we did our due diligence and spoke to a lot of people um, that knew him and that worked with him in the past. And they said, what you will get with John is an incredible work ethic. He will be the first one in, the last one out. And we needed that real leadership, um, you know, moving forward. And And leadership is not about words and it's not about messaging it's about actions you know and and what i can say is the the process was vindicated just seeing the way he the football staff and his coaching staff have gone about it this year the the work has been relentless to get better you know we talk about growth you know his leadership his ability to bring a squad that was really fractured towards the end of last season back United was incredible. You know, his man management skills um, were exceptional. So pretty early on, we got a sense that um, this is going to be a good season um, as long as we recruit well uh, and get, as I mentioned before, a couple of those foreigners and, and players in, uh, we could be in for a good year. So, um, yeah, I, I think what we've learned, and you always learn in this game, that the process to getting where you need to be has got to be robust um, and it's got to be based around what are your core values as a football club, you know, and I think we did that and ended up with a, uh, with a great result. Yeah, it was a really courageous decision, I thought, to, to appoint John. I mean, John has always been one of my favourite soccerers, I must admit, and I was really disappointed that he'd had a couple of uh, unsuccessful stints at, uh, at, at other clubs. And I guess he'd sort of been labelled as a failure, really, as a coach, hadn't he? And, uh, and yet, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, probably to the public, it wouldn't have been a very popular appointment because he would have been perceived as being a, a, a failure as a coach. How did you sort of handle the, the, the sort of public side of or your supporter side of, uh, of that appointment? It's interesting because you, you have to develop thick skin when you're in this business, right? You can't listen to the noise. If I, I, I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter these days for that very reason. You've got to just stick to your path and, and what, you know, what, your, what your vision is and, and what your goals are, you know. Uh, but I, I guess what you need to do is surround the head coach and, and the coaching staff and the performance staff with – strong, you know, great leaders and, and, a, and a great football department, right? Because if you don't, um, if one part of the, the equation isn't working, then it ultimately translates to on the park, you know. So everything's got to be working together. And and I think that was really important. And he saw that as soon as he, you know, he had to spend his time in quarantine. We were still in, in lockdown at that period. But once he, he got to the football club and he saw how much – we invest as a football club, uh, the board and the ownership group, into the football department. You know, he was he was pleasantly surprised and relieved. So he was surrounded by by good people, and the willingness of the of the club to spend in the right areas where we needed to. Again, uh, it's something that we've done 
all the way through um, is, you know, is make sure that, you know, they've got as, as, as much as we can afford the best of, of what they can have to, to, you know, to make their, their job uh, not easier, but to complement what they're doing, you know. So uh, I guess, you know, they, they work in tandem. So, you know, he saw that pretty on and, and he was uh, he was very surprised and, and happily surprised um, at the commitment of the, of the football club, you know, to invest. So, I, I think, um, sorry, Brookie, just to finish off on that, I think also what uh, impressed John um, is, and probably what you undersold a little bit there, Steve, is um, the the thoroughness of that pro that recruitment process. Um, you know, I just recall six seven hour uh, yeah. uh, nights, starting at sort of nine o'clock and going into the early morning, uh, interviewing overseas candidates and. And what, once once we got it down to the final four, we, we actually, um, you know, put them on the spot and showed them video and said, analyze this. And and uh, they had they had football matches that they hadn't seen before to to tell us what went right and wrong and 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 just um, perform coaches' addresses and and just various things that we we sort of put together, yes. which really did. Um, and I, I, in the many conversations I've had with John since, um, it. He really did sort of say, you know, I just couldn't believe the level of detail that you guys went into in that recruitment process. So not only was that serving uh, for us and the club to make sure we got the best candidate, but it also, I think, served to to tell the candidates, hey, we're, we're serious about this and we've put a lot of thought into this. And if you are lucky enough to get the job, you're joining a club that's extremely as you said, well resourced for the A-League, uh, but also prepared to put in the hard yards to make sure that you're successful um, uh, once you do get the job. Yeah, look, I, I, I didn't want to go into too much depth, but you're right. They were they were long nights uh, spent on Zoom because we were at that point in time. It was difficult to do face-to-face uh, meetings uh, through COVID. So, you know, we spent an enormous amount of time, but again, you know, it, it, it was all worthwhile in the end, and and you're right. Um, you know, I've spoken to a couple of the the candidates that were unsuccessful, but they they said to me that it was the best process that they'd ever gone through in terms of applying for a head coaching role. So, yeah, you're right. It it it, it sets the tone and and understands, and I, and I think what it did as well, it showed us who wasn't for our club pretty quickly. You know, in terms of when we had to narrow it down, you know, from the 15 to 8 to 4, um, who wasn't going to be the right fit, you know, and who wasn't. And because it's it's easy to to dazzle people with, you know, data and, and graphics and all the rest of it, but it's, it's not until you, you speak to them and get their take on, on what, what they would do with the football club and, and until you get a real sense of whether they're the right person. So, yeah. It was it was a, a very very long process, but it, it goes to show how important a head coach is in the overall scheme of of your football club. You know, he's the leader, and I think your leader has to set the standard. You know, they've got to set the messaging. They've got to stay consistent. They've got to live our values as a football club every day, and and that's really important because. Once you don't, and, you know, we all hear about 
you lose the players or you lose the locker room or you you know you do this but I think you don't do that if if you stay consistent and you're you're true to your word and and I, and I think that's really important and uh, and John's been all of that and more so it's been uh, yeah like you said an exhaustive process but one that was uh, incredibly worthwhile and we know now moving forward for all key roles you know what level of work we need to do to get the right people into the football club. Steve, I want to just take you back to the start again and talk more about the performance side of things and the yep. appointments and how you went about getting, who were the key appointments there and how did you go about that? Yeah, look, obviously, um, you know, early on uh, we, we set out a blueprint of, of what we needed in the football department, uh, key elements, sports doctor, um uh, lead physio, uh, lead S&C, uh, and, and et cetera. So uh, I guess, again, um, it was really around, and it was a much easier time pre-COVID being able to, to meet face-to-face and and get to know people and and do that due diligence. So I think it's something that we've we've always done. We've, we've spoken to people and previous employees. I mean, it's something that you need to do anyway, um, but we really made a point of it and made a point again that we got the people that were probably on the on the younger, less experienced side, but really eager to learn and and to work. You know, um, uh, I guess that that was really important for us because um, we weren't as as resourced and staff as as we are now. But uh, it was really important that those key elements were in all of the people. So uh, I guess, you know, we were a young club, we were energetic, ambitious, and that really translated to the people that we had, you know, in terms of our, our, our lead physio, our sports doctor, and our SNC at the time, all the young guys who really wanted to work hard and progress their careers, you know. And uh, I, I guess that was what we um, – how, how we judged – um, you know, and, and obviously they they needed to have the right qualifications and 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 some experience in in the field, you know. But um, I, again, with the time frame that that we had, um, we needed to make the best of of, uh, of of what we could. And you know, I thought that that first season, and and you know, there's obviously in the evolution of football clubs, there's been changes since. Uh, people do come and go, but we still have kept the core of, of that group, which is great. Um, but, you know, the, um, uh, the, the work ethic was, was outstanding in, in that first season. When I think about, you know, some of, some of the doubling up on jobs that, that people needed to do to get us through, um, you know, was, was quite remarkable. And I, I look back with, with great fondness on, on those times, even though they were challenging and difficult, but um, it, you know it was great to get some messages from people who are still no longer with the club. And you know, this year when we won the, the grand final, to get those messages and, and talking back about those the journey, and they they were all part of this journey, you know that that we're on, um, you know, and they'll they'll always be part of it. Obviously, you got a lot of things right, Steve, uh, in that initial. Uh, period. Um, but what are some of the things that maybe, you know, you sort of, uh, would do differently if you had the, the chance again, obviously we've talked about the coach, but, uh, um, yeah, what, is there anything else that, you know, you feel as, oh yeah, we didn't do that as well as we could have done? 
Yeah, look, obviously, um, I guess, uh, you know, I, I guess it's more around, less around the, um, you know, the recruitment phase because we couldn't have possibly done anything any differently with the, with the time that we had and, and the amount of work that we needed to do. I guess it's how we then continue to, to build and grow and, and get better. You know, I think there probably post season one, um, I would say that there wasn't enough work done in reviewing where we were at, what we needed to fix and how we needed to get better, you know, and, you know, we had a, uh, like we've spoken about a successful first season, you know, we were one game away from from the grand final, but we probably rested on our laurels a little bit, thinking that we just needed to tweak one or two things and we were going to be there or thereabouts again. And I guess that is probably the one thing that sticks out in my mind around, you know, what I've learned in this short period in, in this game is that you know, you need to get better every year, you know, um, you need to see how you can improve because no matter where you finish, somebody's looking to get higher than you or above you. You know, like, like we said, you know, we were one game away from the grand final. Um, and I, I don't think we did enough work, you know, both on the park and off the park to, to improve and to see, you know, what were the problems, um, you know, maybe listening uh, a little bit better um, and, and trying to fix those, those problems um, to, uh, to have, a, have a better second season. And, you know, I guess that's the challenge now, having won the grand final and being uh, the best in, in the league is now we're the hunted, right? We were, you know, chasing the pack for the first couple of, couple of years so now we're, we're, you know, we're spending a lot of time and a lot of focus on how do we get better, you know, how do we improve um, because everybody, we're the benchmark now. Everybody's looking at us. What did they do right? How did they recruit, you know, how did they go about their football? Um, so I guess that's really important, you know. I guess sport has a, has a way of, you know, revealing yourself uh, if um, you don't do the work, you know. It's, it's all about doing the work and you get the results and the rewards on the weekend. And I guess that's something that, um, you know, we've learned over the journey and I don't think we'll, we'll ever make that mistake again. I just want to talk briefly about the, the final, the recent final series, uh, because yep. you, you know, at the end of the the season, it was all pretty tight at the, at the top of the, uh, at the table, mainly from the the Melbourne teams, isn't it? And but it's fair to say you probably weren't favourites going into the into the final series. What what do you think were the key elements in that in those last you know two or three games that really uh, took you to to the premiership? Yeah, it's um, you know it's really interesting at, in those coaching interviews and and some of the first discussions we had with John, he was desperate to win. You know, he wanted to to win and taste success as a coach. You know, you know, we've all had various levels of success as players, but you know, now it's about how do we how do we get success as a football club? And we did sort of limp into the finals. Um, we were you know in the top two positions all pretty much all all year, and we ended up finishing third. The other two Melbourne teams were above us. So they had a, a week off in the first week of the finals, and we had to play an extra game, um, which was an elimination game. So, 
yeah, we weren't considered the favourites um, going into the final series and purely judged on our form, which was probably justified. We picked up one point out of our last three games leading into the, uh, the final series. So I guess, you know, what John did was talked about just forget about the last the last three results and let's go back to what we did well all season and that was to be really compact really defensively strong and take our chances and be clinical when going forward and and I guess you know how we recruited this season was to bring in players you know where have had a lot of experience and a lot of success you know whether that be overseas or in Australia and, and I think they really stood up and, and were um, when it, when they needed to in the final series because we we went in our first game was an elimination final uh, against Wellington Phoenix and then the semi-finals was a two-leg affair against Melbourne Victory who um, I think hadn't lost a game in 20 weeks and they were in form um, and we were very much the underdogs I think every pundit in Australia picked us not to go through and we were just incredible over those two legs, resilient, tough, hard to break down, um, and and ended up winning that on aggregate 4-2 over, over the two legs. Um, and then moving into the finals against the reigning champions, uh, Melbourne City from the City Football Group, who'd finished top of the table, swept all before them over the last two years. And, and really, again, with that resilience and just mental toughness, just just were able to stop them from being the attacking unit that they were all season and limited their opportunities and ended up winning the grand final 2-0. Um, so I guess, you know, John just went back to what we were doing all season, you know, and, and like I said, big players really stood up on the big occasions for us. And, and I guess that that was the difference. You know, we took our chances and uh, and and fought to keep clean sheets, and, and we did that on uh, on three occasions. And you've, you're alluded to the fact that uh, the pressure's now on you. I mean, you, you've almost won it too early, haven't you? I mean, because uh, you know you've been the sort of underdog uh, and the new boy on the block all the, all these these three years without a lot of expectation. And now, obviously, there you know you're you're going to be expected to win it every year now. And so uh, it's a very different scenario, isn't it? Yeah, it is, but it's never too early, mate. I'll tell you right now, it's, uh, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, it's uh, it's incredible, you know. It's I guess when you're in the thick of it and you're living and 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 breathing it every day, you don't understand the magnitude of of what we've done. And it's only been post grand final over the last three weeks where I've had, you know, separate conversations with people and asking me how did we do it in in such a short period of time you know for an expansion team i guess in any sport you know to to have that sort of success is is rare um and and i guess you know it, it gives us the opportunity now to build the club to grow the club you know we're we're a new team we uh, again we don't have our own stadium so we're playing out of multi venues but it really gives you know, a, an opportunity for the football club to, to build its fan base, to grow, um, you know, to attract players. Players now want to come and be part of what we've built, the culture that we've got here, because players talk, right? And, you know, it's 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 been quite rewarding post and leading up to the grand final, whenever players that have come in this season and contributed to our success talk about 
it's one of the best environments they've ever been at a, at a football club, whether here or overseas. So that's really rewarding to hear from the playing group when they talk about, you know, what we invest, what we put in, how compassionate we are, how we work with the group. Um, you know, that to me is probably the most rewarding thing to come out of this grand final, to know if players are publicly speaking about those sort of things, um, I think you're on the right track, you know, and, um, and that's exciting for the future for this football club. I certainly agree that, it, I mean, I can say this, I guess you two probably can't, but I mean, I, it has to be the greatest uh, achievement by an expansion team in, in, in Australian sport. I know the the uh, the Jack Jumpers basketball team you know, got to the grand final this year, but they didn't win it uh, in yep. their first year. And uh, and you know to to win in your third season is 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 quite unbelievable. I mean, I don't think anyone would even have uh, imagined that uh, even at the start of this year um, uh, that you would have that success. Look, we're nearly out of time, but I just want to go back, uh, Steve, to to you know the 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 bigger picture of Australian football, and yep. uh, we've just had the Socceroos uh, qualify for for the World Cup. Uh, I guess surprisingly, a little bit. I mean, uh, a month ago, you know, they, we were everyone was criticising uh, the, the Socceroos, the coach, and, and the system. You know that we weren't producing good good footballers anymore, and um, and I think you know. It's great that we've qualified, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that that we're not producing the uh, the quality of footballers that we produced in in your generation, uh, the so-called golden generation of, of the '90s and 2000s. You mentioned the uh, the importance of the AIS, and, and that's no longer uh, available for for young players. The uh, the clubs have their own academies. I mean, if if uh, you know, I said to you, Steve Hoy, you, you you've got control of uh, of Australian soccer. Uh, for the next five years, you know, we we I want you to, to to develop the best players we possibly can. What what would you do? Yeah, it's it's such a difficult question, isn't it? You know, I mean, um, I think it's it's really. If I look back at you go back to the golden generation, I, I think there was many more opportunities for footballers at at a higher level. I remember coming out of the AIS. Uh, at the age of 17 and being thrust into the old National Soccer League, which was the the, the A-League of its time. And, you know, uh, you know, playing and 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 having to adapt and and adjust and and work. And and I guess it's it's around opportunities. You know, we need to expand the competition. We need to get a second division, uh, an, an elite second division up and running, you know, so that younger players, um, you know, have to have an opportunity to play at, at the highest level and compete uh, and not play in, in youth league competitions, you know. So that is that is one. And I, and I think we need to get braver and bolder. And, you know, it's, 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 it's a bit rich for me to say that when we're a club who probably over the first couple of seasons of its existence have relied on the older, uh, oldest, older type players and experienced players to get us some initial success. But now it's about our club evolving and, you know, trying to give opportunities to, to young local footballers to try and develop them. You know, I think it's really incumbent on all the clubs to be to be brave and to be bold and start to believe in some young Australian footballers to be given an opportunity. And, and I think that 
you know, that is where we want to get to. Um, and now that, you know, we've had success, we have an element and an opportunity to be able to be a bit more daring in that space and, and, and try and, you know, develop the next generation because, you know, we are being left behind in technically and, and physically uh, capable footballers. But I think we can get there, you know, we can get back there if we all work together and, and make sure all of the competitions are aligning and working together, you know, that the NPL teams, which are the, the, the second tier of football, that all the clubs are, are developing the right way and, and, and pushing youth players as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge challenge, isn't it? We, we just seem to have lost the uh, lost the plot for the last uh, decade or so, and uh, we need to get uh, get back on on top of things. Just finally, um, Qatar, any chance of Socceroos? Hey, always a chance if you. you know. <laughs> I'll never forget um, Mark Viduka when when after the qualifying game against Uruguay two thousand and five. I remember seeing him interviewed on TV, and he was being interviewed and said, you know. What are you going over there to do? And he goes, well, we're not going over there for a haircut. So, he's, <laughs> you know, look, I, I think this, you know, what? It, it's interesting. If you had a look at, you know, the the, the friendly between Barcelona and the A-League All-Stars uh, just before the grand final only a, a few weeks ago, it shows that, you know, with a little bit of nous and, 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 you know, coaching in the right way and, and, and the right players, you know, the, you can compete at that level you know you need sometimes you need a little bit of luck and a little bit of some things to go your way um but you know the the gaps are not as big as we think they are you know so i think belief is a real big one you know and i think our national team we need to be brave you know and and take it to 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 other footballing nations if you look at 2006 I think we had a group of players. Sure, people can say that they were technically better and playing in better leagues, but I think they were brave. You know, we had brave footballers that wanted to get on the ball and and wanted to receive the ball in any area, you know, and I think we need to get back to that where, you know, um, you know, not be scared about making mistakes and wanting the football and, and trying to take it to these teams. So I think if we can if we can get back to that, you know why not? Uh, we can we can give it a shake, but uh, look, it's not going to be easy. Um, actually, just watched Denmark the other night, who look <laughs> very good at the moment. But yeah, look, it's exciting. It's great for football in this country. You see what it means, you know, to to just to qualify, you know, and the profile that it gives our sports, and it gives the next generation of young footballers, both boys and girls, um, you know, belief and and a, and, a, and a dream to hold on to. Yeah, so true. Steve, thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. It's been a fascinating uh, discussion and uh, it's an amazing story, that the Western United story. It'll be, uh, be uh, go down in the annals of Australian sporting history, I think, as, uh, as one of the great, uh, the great sporting team uh, successes. And uh, you know, it's largely due to, to your efforts and, and we're certainly, uh, you know, wholehearted congratulations to you. It's quite an amazing, uh, amazing achievement. And uh, and good luck for the future. We really appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks, guys. Really a uh, pleasure chatting to you. I love the show. Great work. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it.